Hey, it's been really neat last weekend and then Easter Sunday as well to start to meet some of you that I've never met before. And the reason for that is because you've been tracking with us the last number of months. And, uh, and now that we're having gatherings again, we're, we're starting to meet you. So recognize there's more of you that we're going to get to meet in the coming weeks as well. And we're really looking forward to that. And so I just thought I'd take a moment here as we get started to just let you know what we're all about here at Central. Our vision is, is this aim to see the entire Eastern Fraser Valley transformed by the gospel for the glory of God and good of all people. Like we live for that. That's our ministry. That's what we're about as a church, corporate, and then as individuals in our church. We're all about uh, making Jesus known across the Eastern Fraser Valley. And so we're so glad that you're uh, connecting in with us and we invite you to be a part of that. Now, a part of it is that... Um, you know, we recognize that, that, that that's an everybody work. That, that's that's an, our entire church, we're all in sort of a scenario. And yet there are a few, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, pastor leaders who are commissioned to equip everybody for the work of ministry. And so on that front, in terms of pastors, I just want to give you a couple updates. Uh, the first is that a few weeks ago we received uh, Pastor Jessica Ross, our, our part-time women's pastor, we received her resignation. We were sad about this because we love her and appreciate her in this role, um, but we also recognize that she's wanting to lean into um, motherhood and family life uh, in this season and just totally respect that. Uh, Chris, her husband, is also a pastor on our team, so I do not envy the whole two pastors as parents scenario they've been juggling. That's unique and uh, and so we just want to bless you, Jess, and we want to thank you. You've been such a good friend, and of course, you'll continue to be. My office was right beside uh, Jessica's and just had many great in-depth conversations. I've, uh, I've learned so much from you. I'm thankful for you. Uh, most of all, I'm thankful that you uh, served our women's ministry so well these last few years. You're a gifted Bible teacher. You have this quiet strength about you. Um, deep godly wisdom, and you have taught and pastored our women so well. So well, in fact, that our women's ministry carries on. We've got a women's support group happening right now and a women's Bible study going on, and so you've led well, and we're thankful also to the women who are serving in those capacities right now too. And then I also want to let you know that um, we've been waiting for a couple years now on the right timing to plant our Harrison campus. And... Uh, Part of that discernment process was waiting for God to provide the right campus pastor. Well, we are excited to let you know that in July, Jeremy Isaac will be coming on as our Harrison campus pastor and one of our North Fraser pastors on the pastoral team up there. Uh, Jeremy is an amazing guy, a godly man, a man of prayer who loves the church and loves the Lord. His family are fantastic. Um, you know, if Chilliwack and Abbotsford are sort of like a, a, a mecca of Mennonites, well, Winkler, Manitoba would be the other place. And so they are going to be making their way from Winkler, Manitoba uh, to us in July. And actually, him and his wife both grew up in Yarrow, which is like supreme menoness, you know? So uh, uh, we can't wait for them to join us. And just want you to know, um, it's not a high pressure scenario to get Sundays going as the ultimate goal. We want you to be aware that they're gonna come in July. Uh, we want them to get to know the community. We want them to, to get to know the staff and, and, and our church's heartbeat. Uh, want them to get to know 
um, the core group of individuals who are, who are a part of our Agassiz campus, but from Harrison who have been leaning in there as a, as a core there, give them time to figure out what the community is all about as well before we invite many of you to join them as a launch and a kind of a core team uh, when the timing is right to uh, pl officially plant that campus. But we are rejoicing and praising God and want you to be aware of both of those transitions and that our goal remains the same, right? We aim to see the entire Eastern Fraser Valley transformed by the gospel. Now, if you've got a Bible, I just want to invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 8. This is very much a part two to the sermon I gave a couple weeks ago, uh, because uh, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, we saw Philip fleeing persecution in Jerusalem and fleeing into Samaria. And as he went, he shared the gospel and people came to faith and he found a revival on his hands, God doing a work in Samaria and the church was born there. Now we pick it up and Philip's in a different scenario as well and he shares the gospel there. What we, what we looked at a couple weeks ago was that every Christian is a missionary and every place is a mission field. We, we saw that in the text. And so those are kind of big picture ideas that we would say yes to. But you might have a question underneath it like, but how? <laughs> okay, but how, right? Like, how do I work that out? If I'm a missionary, what does that look like? If every place is a mission field, like, what do I do there? Well, I actually believe that this text, Philip's interaction here with the Ethiopian eunuch is really instructive for us. That's why I've entitled this sermon Evangelism 101. Now, before we get to um, five principles for effective evangelism, first, I, I want us to um, clarify a few things in the text. First, we see that an angel of the Lord, verse 26, said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, I want to show you a picture of that road. It's a desert road um, that, yes, went from Jerusalem to Gaza, but it was actually quite a well-used road, even though it was in the, the desert. Um, it was quite well used because it not only went to Gaza, it carried on into Egypt and therefore the continent of Africa. We also see that the man that Philip is invited by the Holy Spirit to meet and encounter is an Ethiopian. Now, we know of Ethiopia, the country today. Well, ancient Ethiopia um, had slightly different border. Uh, it was bigger. Uh, parts of what's modern-day southern Egypt, uh, also the Sudan and Ethiopia today, all were a part of ancient Ethiopia, and in the Old Testament, this same kingdom ref was referred to as Cush, K-U-S-H. We also see that the Ethiopian was a court official of Candace. Uh, essentially, he was um, the treasurer to the queen, the treasury secretary. And, and this queen's name wasn't Candace. This Candace is a title for this queen mother, for her position. So if your name is Candace, it's not that you share a name with one particular queen. It's that you're a queen. <laughs> it's just this general title for these queens. And so he was a high-ranking official, essentially, essentially the secretary of the treasury. And we also discover that he was a eunuch. Now, this was quite common at that time for an official who worked with a female to be made a eunuch um, so that it would take out the risk of uh, sexual impropriety. And so he was made a eunuch so that he could work closely with the queen and it was quite 
common. Now, this Ethiopian was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem. And so um, we know that Judaism had reached Egypt. And of course, now it's, it's also gone further. This Ethiopian man has heard about this one Yahweh God and the whole pantheon of gods and been intrigued by that. We don't know if he was a proselyte actually converted to Judaism or something of a God-fearer, which in the Bible is refer, if someone's a God-fearer, it's sort of they have a reverence and respect, but not necessarily a proselyte. And so we don't know what the case is with the Ethiopian, but we know that he's interested enough to travel uh, that great distance to go and worship in Jerusalem, and now he's on his way back. But there were two reasons that he would have discovered in Jerusalem, um, two reasons that he had not been able to enter the main section of the temple. And those reasons were, one, that he was a non-Jew. He was a foreigner. Even if he was a convert to Judaism, he wasn't a true Jew. And so therefore, he wouldn't have been able to enter um, very closely into the temple area. And secondly, he was a eunuch. Now, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, I won't read it word for word, but essentially what it says is that eunuchs must stand at a distance. And so having spent money and been on a pilgrimage and offered a sacrifice, he was still unable to encounter God because of two things in his body that he could not change. He couldn't change his race and he couldn't change his eunuchness. And so it's likely that he was reading an Isaiah scroll, which he was doing, but doing so because Isaiah prophesied that a day was coming when foreigners and eunuchs would be welcomed fully into the household of faith. Let me read Isaiah 56, verse 3 for you. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Verse four, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This prophecy of Isaiah, what unfolds is that an African eunuch who had racial and physical barriers from becoming a full Jew is presented by Philip with the full gospel and an invitation to full membership into the people of God through Jesus Christ. That's the story. And within this text, I now want to show you five principles for effective evangelism. Now, when I say that, don't hear five easy steps to evangelism. Just follow these steps and then everything will be easy. I'm not saying that. Instead, I want to show you five insights into the evangelistic work of Philip that we see in the text that can serve us well as we seek to reach people for Jesus as well. Now, because every Christian is a missionary and every place is a mission field, these principles I want to share are helpful for all of us. Here's the first one. It's an important one. It's a primary one. Rely on the Holy Spirit. In verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 29 says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And then in verse 39, after he's been baptized, it says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. 
See, what we see is the Holy Spirit working mightily in this text. It reminds me of something that happened to a guy named Ian Thomas on a flight. He was traveling on a plane, uh, tired and hoping to sleep when he heard someone say, psst. He started to look around and then he heard again like, psst. And when he looked to see where the sound was coming from, his eyes met those of a stranger. And the man said, I'm reading in the Bible about Nicodemus in John 3, and I don't understand it. Do you know anything about the Bible? Now, whether it's Philip approaching the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the Isaiah scroll, or whether it's this man on a flight with Ian Thomas saying, I don't understand John 3 about being born again, here's something that we realize. The Holy Spirit continues to divinely orchestrate conversations. He continues to guide his people by the word and the Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit is all over this text. And the Holy Spirit is all over every one of our testimonies as well. That's why nobody who's a follower of Jesus has a boring testimony, because it's a God story. Jesus is the hero of every one of our stories. We were drawn to Christ, and that's an amazing miracle. It's incredible. So none of us, look, none of us turn to Jesus because we were with it and and particularly bright. No, we turn to Jesus because the Spirit of God opened our eyes so we could see the truth, so that we could love the truth. And so what that should do is it should produce a lot of gratitude in us regarding our testimonies, real thankfulness for salvation. And that should also produce a lot of confidence in us in our evangelistic efforts. The Holy Spirit is in it. So when we engage in the mission of Jesus, the Spirit is doing his work. And we're simply called to run alongside the chariot, you know? So first, rely on the Holy Spirit. Second, recognize that evangelism can happen anywhere. Now, when I use the word evangelism in this sermon, here's what I'm referring to. The spreading of the gospel through public preaching or personal witness. The spreading of the gospel through public preaching or personal witness. And Philip did both, right? He preached to a crowd in Samaria, and now he's sharing Jesus with one person in the desert, right? Really different context. Maybe you can imagine Philip thinking, why would you send me to this desert road, Lord, when a revival is happening here in Samaria? Well, a bit of history, Irenaeus, uh, the second century church father, wrote that this Ethiopian became the first missionary to the continent of Africa. We see that he goes on his way rejoicing And so we can only trust that when he arrived there, he continued to share this incredible news as well. But history, church history tells us that this Ethiopian eunuch was the first missionary to the continent of Africa. So Philip might have thought, God, why would you take me out of this city where a revival's breaking out to talk to one guy on a desert road? And the answer is, well, because I want to reach a continent, not just a city. Now, anyways, regardless, what we see in these two examples of Philip sharing the gospel is that evangelism can happen anywhere through public preaching or personal witness. Philip's priority wasn't big or small. It was faithfulness. When we read a story like this, it just seems too perfect sometimes, right? An angel of the Lord tells Philip to go on a certain road, and then the Holy Spirit says, 
go up beside that chariot and the guy's reading the Bible, <laughs> right? It's like, okay, come on, that's a Bible story. Well, that Ian Thomas story t- uh, reminds us that, well, actually, right, this still happens. And I, 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 myself, I myself was reminiscing earlier this week about the variety of opportunities I've had to share Jesus with others over the years. It, it's, it's quite a variety. Um, well, obviously this, right? Church services, preaching. A couple years ago, a man walked up to me after the service and held out his hand and said, hi, I'm Dave, and this is my first day being a Christian. He had given his life to the Lord that morning. So in the context of, of church services and preaching, I've gotten to share Jesus. Many years ago at a job I, I worked at, there was a guy I worked with who was extremely opposed to Christianity. I'm not, I'm not sure if he, I can't remember if he, called himself an atheist or not, but he very much had that attitude, I'm, I'm mad at the God who doesn't exist, right? Had sort of that vibe about him and, and he would let me know his issues with God and Christianity and the church. I remember having a conversation with him about that and then a few weeks later, I remember him coming up to me and saying, hey, can you tell me about Jesus and can I come to church with you? And I was like, What? What happened? And he, he proceeded to tell me, this was a young man who struggled with depression and anxiety. And he told me that he had this panic attack. And then as it was subsiding, he took the newspaper that was there and saw an article on anxiety in the faith section and how God can be your peace. That was such a reminder to me that no one is beyond God's grasp, even those who scoff at God and claim that it's foolishness. Uh, I knew a, a guy who his family and his family, his youngest sibling, his youngest brother uh, died of a, a drug overdose. And um, the family asked if I would join them at the funeral home um, by the casket and just say a few words and pray with the family. None of them were believers. And I remember driving there and asking the Lord to to give me the right words to say. And I just remember saying to the, the parents specifically, just looking at them and saying, God knows what it's like to lose a son. And then getting to share the rest of the gospel story with them. Well, the father in that family uh, gave his life to Christ and uh, then died of cancer within the year. And, uh, and so the opportunities just kept coming and the family asked that I go to his bedside, uh, his deathbed at the hospital and he was not only joined by his immediate family but some of his closest friends and, and other relatives and around the bedside I was just able to guide him into making peace with God and um, recalling any sin that he might need to repent of or any relationships that he might need to right that, that are in the wrong and, and just, just kind of guide him and give him peace and tell him what's coming for him in glory and um, just kind of got to share that in the presence of the family and then he passed away and they asked if I would come say a few words at the funeral and this was the most different funeral I'd ever been to in my life. It was in a big pub and the pub was packed and everybody had a beer or something harder. And I was asked to go up and just say a few words and pray in the big pub. <laughs> and, um, and so I just shared a few anecdotes of my experience with this man. Uh, they were coming to our church before he passed away. And, and he would, when I was preaching, he would text me what a good job I was doing <laughs> while I was preaching. 
And I'd have my phone on me, so I'd see afterwards, like, hey, you're doing, I'd never heard this before. That's so amazing. I love that. Oh, my wife's elbowing me in the side, telling me I shouldn't text you. It's distracting. And I just see all these texts after the sermon. I was just relaying this, but then just sharing the good news of Jesus in the pub that day. Maybe three years ago or so, I was at a, a conference down in the States in a big, big convention hall. I remember kind of walking in the convention hall because I had received a phone call from a friend who had this, this spiritual vision that really troubled him. And he was telling a buddy about this and his buddy said, well, don't you have a friend who's a pastor? You should call him and you should get right with God. So I received this phone call of him being like, what do I need to do to follow God? to be made right with God, right? I think about the church context, coworkers, family at a graveside, at the pub, with a buddy on the phone. Look, the reality is we need to recognize that evangelism can happen anywhere and the Holy Spirit is working. Now, we've been sold a bill of goods in, in our kind of post-Christian society and that's that the, the going... Um, understanding is that there's this secular, sacred secular divide. Maybe you've heard of that term. And, and so that's, that's generally what our society buy into, this idea that, that the public square is a secular space and it's okay for you to love God, but that's privatized, that's for your privatized sacred space. So the challenge is, is as, as we're raised as Christians in a society like that, is we often believe that to be true. We buy into that and say, oh, well, I can't really talk about Jesus. Well, because this is a secular space. That's for my private faith. And so what I want you to see is don't buy that, right? Every Christian's a missionary and every place is a mission field. In fact, you want, a, you want your faith to feel real? You want your faith to feel real? Step out in faith and tell someone about Jesus. You will be blown away at how the Holy Spirit, how God meets you in that. Like, I, it was just so encouraging for me to just look back on, on recent years and just stories coming to mind of God orchestrating opportunities for me to share Jesus. It's incredibly encouraging. I invite you, recognize that evangelism can happen anywhere. Third, Appreciate the significance of questions. You know, it's kind of fascinating to see that really uh, the four questions asked in this text kind of govern the whole thing. Let me show you. Right? Philip asks one simple question and the Ethiopian asks the next three. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, here's the question, do you understand what you are reading? That's Philip's simple question. And the Ethiopian responds back, how can I unless someone guides me? And then he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So from, I have no clue what's go going on, I have no clue what I'm reading, to, can you think of any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? 
Right? These questions really kind of navigate, govern the whole text. And I want to invite you to appreciate the significance of questions, whether it's just posing a question or listening well when a question is asked. I mean, the ministry of Jesus is so marked by this. I read a document earlier this week um, that shows that Jesus asked 339 questions in the Gospels. Now, three of them are synoptic Gospels telling many of the same stories, and yet Jesus asked 339 questions in the Gospels, and it's a brilliant way of him helping people wrestle with faith. We see in Matthew 9, the disciples of John the Baptist ask Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus responds to this question with a question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Just asks that question back. I mean, what he's getting at is the arrival of the kingdom is a time for rejoicing, and the kingdom is at hand. In Luke 10, a lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a big question. That's an important question, and Jesus responds with a question. What is written in the law of Moses? And the lawyer responds back, well, love God and love neighbor, essentially. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And then the lawyer comes back and says, well, who's my neighbor? And then right along with asking good questions is telling good stories. So Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, right, about a man who's robbed and left for dead on a road, and three men come by him and only one helps. And at the end, Jesus asks a question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he just presents that back to the lawyer. Matthew 16 is one of my favorites. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. Here's the first. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples respond. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say other prophets. And then Jesus follows it up and says, Who do you say that I am? It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous words that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but he cannot be anything else. He cannot just be a good moral teacher. He can't say, oh, Jesus, I appreciate him, but because he doesn't come that way. He describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And you have to wrestle with those words of Jesus. And Jesus just point blank asks them, who do you say that I am? What a great question. And then it's followed up with this powerful scene that leads to Peter confessing Jesus as the Son of God. So I want to invite you, appreciate the significance of both asking a good question and listening well when others express their questions, which leads next uh, well into the fourth principle. Start where they're at. Start where they're at. Verse 34 says this, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself? or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, the scripture that the Ethiopian was reading and just asked him a question about. Philip doesn't start with an agenda or a prepackaged speech. He meets the man where he is, responds to his question, and addressing the scripture passage, he had questions about Look, if you're going to really engage people, you have to start where they are. So there's this analogy, um, this set of images that, that I think you'll find helpful and you've probably seen before. Um, 
the story of the gospel encapsulated this way. God created us for meaningful relationships with him and others. God created us in his image and in right relationship with him and each other. And yet sin entered into the world, right? We sinned. And so what happened there is it created this chasm, right? We see this in this first image. Sin separates us from God. Right? God is perfectly holy and righteous, and now we are sinful. How can we mingle with God? We are no longer in right relationship with God because we have wronged God and one another. And we go to the second image and see, despite our best efforts to live a good life or good deeds and religion and earn our salvation, it's really just a few steps further, but still there's such a chasm. We still sin despite our best efforts and fall short of the glory of God which leads to this third image. And so God, in his grace, sent his son Jesus to bridge our separation from God by paying the penalty for our sin and dying in our place. I mean, Romans 6.23 tells this story perfectly. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the gospel. And, and this set of images is, is helpful because it, this is really a summary of our faith. There's really just w- one problem with this analogy, though. If we dig a little deeper, right? It, it, it's this. It, it assumes that people, like the guy in the, the, those images, are standing on the edge of the cliff longing to be reconciled to God across the chasm. Now, question for you. Does that describe the people in your life who don't know Jesus? Right? If you would just tell them the gospel, they'd eagerly respond? Well, typically, no. There are times when, like receiving the phone call or the guy on the plane or a man walked into our building once and just said to a pastor, like, can you tell me how to become a Christian? Like that stuff happens. The Holy Spirit does those things. But typically, when we go to share Jesus or find opportunities to talk about faith with others, they're not typically standing at the edge of the chasm longing to be reconciled to God. No, because there's not only a chasm between them and God, there's a chasm between their issues with God and their desire to stand at the edge of the chasm, right? There's a whole other chasm, and it's really their issues with God. A bunch of years ago now, my wife and I did a little neighborhood Bible study, uh, obviously with some of our neighbors, and we were looking through this little, working through this little discipleship book. Uh, It was really helpful. It was really basic and yet rich. Like, it just sort of described what studying the Bible was about and what the gospel is and what church is all about, just succinctly and clearly for for people exploring faith or new to faith. It's called The Walk. And we had some neighbors from across the street who um, weren't believers who would come, and they loved coming. And um, the, the one particular neighbor, she, was, she would come and sit there and she just, she wouldn't say much. Until a few weeks in, I guess she got kind of comfortable enough and then she shared her big question. And she was from Korea and she told a story of a woman in Korea whose son had been murdered. And so the man went to prison for doing that and then he found Jesus, he came to Christ, right? And he repented of the sin of killing this woman's son and according to the gospel, was forgiven by God. 
And yet this mother found that deeply unjust, right? And so the woman sitting in our living room was talking about this, like that doesn't seem fair. See, the question she had wasn't her standing at the chasm longing to be reconciled to God. She was way back here saying, I'm not sure if the God you worship is just. I think he's unjust. And so we had to start right there and just have conversations about the love and justice of God. Meet her there because it's, she's not standing at the edge of the chasm. And so we need to engage the questions people have which are hurdles in front of them long before they're ever, I want God or I need Jesus. So there's the fourth principle. Start where people are, not where you think they should be. And fifth and finally, focus on Jesus. Look at verse 32. Now, the passage of the, of the scripture that he was reading, that the Ethiopian was reading, was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now that text is Isaiah 53. It's, it's part of the suffering servant prophecy. And it goes on to say that he, referring to Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. And so Philip starts in that text and presents the gospel to him. This isn't, um, uh, well, Charles Spurgeon, he's attributed as saying, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. Essentially, that's what Philip is doing here. He starts in Isaiah 53, but ultimately it's about Jesus. And so he's able to lead him there. And this isn't some sort of sleight of hand or trickery, right? Oh, you want to talk about this? Well, I'm going to talk about that. No, 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 no. This is handling the Bible faithfully because Jesus is the great focus of the Bible. Let me show you that Jesus is the focus of the Bible. In a 2007 talk, Timothy Keller said this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your, own, your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betray and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. 
Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible isn't really about any Old Testament heroes. It's about one hero. And the Bible isn't really about you. It's about him. Ultimately, the Bible is all about Jesus. And ultimately, the Christian faith is all about Jesus. So focus on Jesus. All right, to summarize, what should we do with all of this? I want to give you four takeaways um, beyond those, those five points of emphasis. Well, they tie in. Here's the first. I want to invite you to respond like the Ethiopian eunuch did. I don't know if we understand how significant it was that this Ethiopian eunuch, that this racial outsider, right, these physical barriers, that he could be embraced into the family of God without reservation. The gospel is stunning. And that applies to you wherever you are. Whatever kind of outsider you feel like you are, the gospel's for you. The invitation is that you get to respond to Jesus. And the way we do that is we say, yeah, there is a chasm between me and God. And it is because of my sin. And so we bring it to God, recognizing as we repent, as we ask God to forgive us of all the wrongs we've done, that the cross bridges the gap. God made a way through his son Jesus for you to be made right with God. I want to invite you to respond in faith and turn to Jesus. And we'd love to hear about that. Please reach out. The second way that the Ethiopian responds is he sees a body of water and says, is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Why? Well, because he'd given his life to Jesus. He believed the good news. He responded to it in faith. And then he's like, I get baptized next, right? And Philip's like, yeah, let's do it. And so if you've given your life to Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, I want to invite you. This is all part of Evangelism 101, is we want to make Jesus known in the Eastern Fraser Valley and leverage our lives to that end. That's what we're all about. That's what we're here for. And so if you want to declare Christ to those around you, I just invite you, take the step of water baptism. I'm going to make this really practical for you. Our next baptism ministry partnership class is May 25th at 9 a.m. That's a Saturday. And if you can't make that one, we've got one on Monday, June 7th at 6 p.m. We're making this really easy for you. And then we're going to have lake baptisms late in the summer. And we would love to have you be a part of that. So please register for one of those classes. Third takeaway here, I want to invite you to get to know the Bible well enough to be able to explain Jesus from all the scriptures. There are a number of reasons for you to be devoted to the word of God, right? The, the word of God will, is food, it's nourishment. You can take the word of God with you and it's 
applies just um, the truths about God to you in every circumstance of your life. There's a closeness and a knowing of Jesus that you get by spending time in the word. Another motivation, an additional motivation for knowing the Bible well or doing devotions and getting into the word of God is so that you uh, are built up in your knowledge of knowing the scriptures and being able to explain Jesus from all the scriptures. Invite you to do that. Fourth, I, I really want to encourage you to rely on the Holy Spirit. I want to give you a challenge. Why don't you, every day this week, maybe in the morning ideally, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity to share Jesus with someone? Let's, let's instead of being slaves to our technology, let's get our technology to work for us. If you have an iPhone, you can hold up your iPhone right now and you can say, hey Siri, Remind me every day at 8 a.m. to ask the Holy Spirit for opportunities to share the gospel. And boom, every day at 8 a.m. or whatever you choose, it will remind you to pray that. And if you have an Android, I'm sure it's not that cool, doesn't work like that. You can ask Alexa. She's probably, we all know she's listening in right now, always is. Uh, but just practically find a way to remind yourself every day this week to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity to share Jesus the Holy Spirit loves to magnify Christ and put a spotlight on Jesus. So pray to that end and then find yourself given opportunities to share Christ. Evangelism 101, so helpful, so good. May the Holy Spirit go before us and may we make Jesus known wherever we are. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that the good news is the best news. It's, it's the life-transforming stuff. It's everything to us. Jesus, I pray that you would make us the kind of people, give us the kind of boldness, the kind of courage, and a kind of winsomeness, Lord, to be able to share Jesus wherever people are at and wherever we find ourselves, wherever you take us and wherever you divinely set up a conversation. We want to make you known in the Eastern Fraser Valley, Lord. Would you give your saints the opportunity to do so and would you build your church and may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.